1: Hello my friends, welcome back to Voices in My Head, I am your host Rick Lee James and this is episode number 123, today's podcast is going to be part 8 of 10 in the series Questions from God, I recorded it a few weeks ago in West Virginia at a camp meeting and had an awesome time doing it, I hope you've been enjoying these messages, can't believe there's only 3 left starting today, so uh, part 8, hey had a great week in Nashville last week and uh, getting ready to do a show tomorrow night for a fundraiser uh, for my hymn project and then another one in Indiana here in about a week so uh, check out rickleyjames.com and make sure you check out the upcoming dates I've got a few things coming up there and looks like I'll be heading to Louisville next month most likely if everything works out on the calendar and uh, God willing if we raise all the money we need uh, we'll be recording this new hymns album before the end of the year um, oh and as always check out YouTube. Slash James. I just put a new video up there today. It's a Charles Wesley hymn, Depth of Mercy, and I uh, would love to hear what you think about that. And uh, also, if you have a chance, I would love for you to go to iTunes and leave us a review. It's been a while since we got a review, and I just kind of want to make sure you're still out there. So uh, thanks for listening to Voices in My Head. Here's part eight. I hope you enjoy it. God bless. Um my message tonight. I I want to ask you a question first from me, and then as we go into the message a little bit further, we're going to get into some questions from God. Uh, We've been dealing all week, at least in my messages, with questions from Him, because I find as interesting as our questions are, they are not nearly as interesting as God's questions to us. God asks us questions to search our hearts. You can see it many times in Scripture that He will ask us things because He wants us to know Him and to know ourselves more. And so that's what we have been dealing with this week. So my question, before we get into the question from God, I've been thinking a lot about unity, and here we are on a unified night. We're here where normally they have the traditional service and the contemporary service, and tonight we're here unified together. So my question is this, is it possible for a group of people to really be united? And Let me, let me put it a little bit further. Is it possible for a group of people to be united around something that isn't against something else? I mean, think of it. Sports fans, for instance. I'm not really a sports guy. That's more my dad thing. I've always been more into music and reading comic books and stuff like that. Uh, But I have lived in Ohio for almost 13 years now. So I guess I'm a Buckeye, which is a worthless nut, as we all know. Um, I mean, I know it as well as anybody. Um, But, you know, Ohio State is like a religion around there. The Buckeyes. And you know who their mortal enemy is? Michigan, yeah. I, I, my, my wife is, is, is the football fan of the family and I mean she just hardly misses a game. If she possibly can see it, she will. And uh, you know Ohio State fans talk bad about Michigan. They're united in that and how much they dislike Michigan. Um, they talk about Michigan's fans, uh, Michigan's fans' parents and the horse they rode in on. I mean they just don't like Michigan. Indiana, I used to live there. Indiana's rivalry was, who is it, Dad? Purdue? Yeah, it used to be Purdue. I don't know. Dad, Dad used to lose sleep at night because if Purdue, if Purdue beat Indiana University, you know, it was, it was one of those type things. Um, well, I'm a little bit more in the geek world, okay? Because, like I said before, I like comic books, I like sci fi movies, and things like that. I like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Uh, So in the geek world, you know, you'll have some guys that are like huge Star Trek fans versus the Star Wars fans, you know. And one is better than the other. Or new Star Trek versus old Star Trek. Those new movies are just not near as good as those old papier-mâché sets, you know, back in the, the 60s. New Star Wars versus old Star Wars. Marvel versus DC. I even know some people that are Coke versus Pepsi in the way that they are. You know, I mean, it's like only Coke, only Pepsi, you know. Uh, I mean, and and then there's, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes versus Moriarty. I mean, there's always this versus. We've even had Catholic versus Protestant. We've had nation versus nation. Seems like the only way to really unite is to get against somebody else. That's how the world for some reason, seems to be ordered. So when I go back to that question again, is it possible for a group of people to be united around something that isn't against something else? Tonight, I want to share a story with you about a fictional character by one of my favorite authors. His the author's name is Wendell Berry, and maybe a few of you have read Wendell Berry before. He wrote what I call a masterpiece of a book. Uh, It's a novel called Jaber Crow. Jaber Crow is the character in the book. But Jaber, even though he is a fictional character, uh, it's as though he is writing the book himself. A lot of people think it's almost uh, Wendell Berry's autobiography when he tells this story. But let me give you a summary of this story of Jaber Crow. His real name, his given name at birth, was Jonas. Jonas Crow, born in Goforth, Kentucky, lost both of his parents at a very young age and went to live with his aunt and uncle for several very happy years. But when Jonas' aunt and uncle also passed away when he was only 10 years old, he was sent to an orphanage where his identity becomes little more than a letter in the alphabet. J. And I'm okay with that. My, my last name's James, so I'm okay with that J name. Throughout his entire life, J remembers the cold stares of authority that he received at the orphanage where there was very little love given. Eventually he grows up and he leaves the orphanage, earning a scholarship to study for the ministry. But while at seminary, he begins to develop some troubling questions about the Bible and certain Christian beliefs related to the soul and body. He realizes that the ministry may not be the best path for him. And after several conversations with some theology professors that helped to shape him, he decided maybe the ministry was not the path that God intended for him in his life. That maybe there was a different purpose that God had for him. So as a young adult in 1937, Jonas leaves seminary, making his way through a horrendous, record-breaking flood back to the small settlement in Kentucky called Port William, drawn there to his happiest early memories of a simpler life. He becomes the town's only barber, and is called Jaber by his friends. Thus, the name of the book, Jaber Crow. He spends his adulthood as the town barber, where he becomes a quiet but important part of this small Kentucky farming community. Jaber's story is a tale of a man's love for his community and an unrequited love for a good woman named Maddie Chatham, who made a mistake early in her life of marrying the wrong man, who is a philandering husband named Troy Chatham. Remember that name, Troy Chatham. As Jaber continues to redefine and reexamine his faith, he tells the story of his quiet life as the, barber, as the barber, local grave digger, and the church custodian in Port William during the middle of the 20th century. True to his moral code, Jaber never indulges in modern luxuries like running water, and he disturbs the earth as little as possible, for he deeply loves God's creation." All the while, Jaber watches his beloved community deteriorate as modern mechanized farming replaces the older, more earth-friendly methods of farmers who have passed on. In Jaber's many years in Port William, he witnesses many things, including the nation's wars that take many of the town's citizens away. One Saturday evening in Port William's barbershop, the men of the town were talking about the war, And the protesters of the war specifically, Troy, Maddie's philandering husband, is present with some strong opinions of his own. And in the book, Jaber says this, Troy became a fierce partisan of the army and the government's war policy. The war protesters had started making a stir and talk in my shop ran pretty much against them. Troy hated them. As was his way, he loved hearing himself say bad things about them. So one Saturday evening, while Troy was waiting his turn in the chair, the subject was started and Troy said, they ought to round up every one of them protesters and put them right in front of the communists. And whoever killed who, it would all be good. Well, there was a pause after that. Nobody wanted to top it. It was hard to do, but I quit cutting hair, Jaber says. And I looked at Troy, and I said, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Troy jerked his head up and widened his eyes at me, and he said, Where did you get that crap? I said, Jesus Christ. And Troy said, Oh. It would have been a great moment in the history of Christianity, except that I did not love Troy seems to me the best way to really unite a people is to give them a common enemy. It's no different in the Scripture passage we're going to look at together this evening. A mob of people get a scapegoat and they bring her before Jesus, expecting that He will jump on the bandwagon and condemn her just like they are. But we'll find something in the Scripture passage that God in Jesus begins asking a question. And it's a question that I think he might be asking us as well tonight. So let's look at John chapter 8 together, verses 1 through 11. And let's just stand together for the reading of the word tonight. John chapter 8. They all went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and he said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? That's our question from God tonight. She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord, and we are thankful for it. Please be seated this evening. Now, in the previous chapter of John, John chapter 7, Jesus caused a stir in Judea. And He caused many people to believe that He was Messiah. And He caused a lot of other people to get pretty angry at Him. He refers to Himself as the water that will quench the spiritual thirst of people. At the end of the chapter, the Pharisees and scribes all go home plotting how to kill Jesus. And Jesus goes off to pray at the Mount of Olives. You see the difference? The religious folks went off to plot a murder. And Jesus went off to pray. Now, the Mount of Olives seems to be a favorite place of Jesus to pray. Early in the morning, though, Jesus returns to the temple. And the people are all gathered there to hear what He has to say. And the religious authorities decide to set a trap for Him. They bring in a woman who has been caught committing adultery. And they explain that in the law, in Deuteronomy 22, it requires that they stone her. It's a slow, gruesome process, stoning. It doesn't just happen with one rock. I think sometimes we think of little pebbles. My son, who is one and a half, loves to pick up little tiny rocks and kind of throw them in the backyard, and it's cute. This was not that. This was a gruesome, painful, slow, horrifying way to die as one rock after another would hit a person, as they in agony would have the life drain out of them, one stone at a time. Well, the law required them to kill the man with the woman as well. If you go to that scripture passage, I always wonder where the man is. It says they caught her in the middle of committing adultery, so I would assume the man was there too, but he somehow got out of it. So they're already kind of off on their law just a little bit. But the religious authorities and scribes, the Pharisees, they want to know what they think Jesus would do. Execute her or let her go. And this was actually a very clever trap. It's exactly why Jesus didn't want to go back to Judea in the first place. In the previous chapter, you see the disciples wanted him to go back to Judea and Jesus didn't want to, it seemed Because he knew that his life was already going to be threatened. Some scholars think that the Romans might have forbidden Jewish people from putting anyone to death since the Romans were lorded over the Jews. It would be the Romans' responsibility to put to death, which if that is right, means that Jesus is now caught in a pretty tough catch-22. If Jesus says the woman should be stoned, he'll be rejecting Roman law. If he says that she shouldn't be stoned then he'll be rejecting Jewish law. And this will prove that he isn't from God because he's breaking God's law or he's breaking man's law. Looks like a no-win situation. It's a good thing that while the religious people had been off coming up with a way to trap Jesus, that Jesus had been off praying. Jesus seems to be unshaken by their question. He seems to be calm and unafraid, and very wise. Instead of reacting to their question, immediately with a rebuttal, he says nothing, he bends down, and he just starts riding on the ground. I think Jesus was being contemplative. He was being prayerfully creative in that moment. I love how even when Jesus is being taken to the cross, it's always on His terms. He is calm, He is wise, and He is unafraid. He doesn't react. He seems to be creating a response, but He doesn't just jump right in. He makes them wait for it. I love it. It's one of my favorite parts in Scripture. And this is the only place in the the Bible where we have Jesus recorded as writing anything, and we don't have any idea what He wrote. There is, however, a long-standing tradition which I think the Pharisees and those who came to convict this woman would have been familiar with. It's from Jeremiah 17, 13. Now remember, Jesus has already referred to Himself as the water of life in the chapter before in John. And in Jeremiah 17, which would have been familiar to these good religious Orthodox Jewish people, It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So in John chapter 7, the chapter before when Jesus refers to himself as the living water that will flow out of the believer's heart, when Jesus calls himself living water, it might be a clue to us that some people who have forsaken God are about to be put to shame. It's ironic that the ones in this story who have turned away from the Lord are the religious people. There was no Christian church yet of the day, so let's just call them the church. It was the church people who had turned away from God. The religious authorities kept questioning Jesus. They were getting tired of waiting, but Jesus made them wait as He just wrote in the dirt. Maybe he was writing their names. They don't see that he is prophetically reenacting Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. And finally, Jesus stands up and he tells them possibly the most genius response I have ever heard. Let any ma- anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And suddenly those who are condemning her of being a sinner are now shown to be sinners as well. Starting with the elders. And remember what I said last night. My, my friend Brian Zahn said this first. And I'm stealing it from him. A non-contemplative elder is just an old person. It's interesting to me that the elders were the first to drop their rocks. As if to say, even in this church that had lost its way, I think maybe the elders were the first to catch on. And sometimes even today... Our elders can get it wrong a little bit, but sometimes they're the first to catch it and make it right. I don't know if that's what's to the say in there, but I find it very significant that it mentions the elders dropped their stones first. And the religious leaders began dropping their stones one by one, and the younger people began following their example until no one is left standing there but Jesus and this woman who has been so publicly humiliated and embarrassed and shamed I can't imagine what she must have been feeling. Sure, she was guilty of committing sin. There's no question about that. But Jesus is not in the business of humiliating you for your sin. Jesus has never been in the business of humiliating you for the sin you have committed. Jesus doesn't want you to publicly be brought before everybody and stoned for your sin. Jesus wants to heal your sin. Jesus wants to heal you and bring a salvation to you that will bring healing to your life. Jesus asks her the question, is there anyone left to condemn you? And I wonder if she's pondering how to answer herself. Jesus, after all, is the one without sin. I don't know if she knows this about Jesus. But he's the only one in the story who actually could cast the first stone. What does she expect from him? Does he think now he's going to start accusing her? Does he think he will stone her all by himself? I don't know. Will he just yell at her real good? Will he judge her? And she replies to his question and says, there's no one left, sir. Everyone who accused her is gone. And Jesus replies, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Go on a new journey is a way that can be translated. Take a new path. Take a new road. You don't have to be trapped in what you have been doing any longer. You don't have to repeat the cycle over and over and over. Jesus just simply says, I don't condemn you. Start anew. I want to ask you this same question that Jesus asked this woman tonight. Who is condemning you? Let me turn that around on some of us as well. Who are you condemning? Who do you have your stones aimed at right now? You may not have your stones aimed at anybody, and I'm certainly not accusing anyone. But I know religious crowds have a tendency to turn on people and aim their stones I too have been guilty of this. As I stand before you, God has to preach these words to me first before I can bring them to anyone. And I'm just as guilty as anyone. Sometimes churches decide, well, we don't really like what the pastor's doing. Let's get our stones out. And believe me, those pastors feel them. They may not be real stones, but it hurts just as bad. That old line about sticks and stones may break my, my bones, but words will never hurt me is the biggest lie ever told. Words are worse, I promise. Is it a coworker? Is it the president? <laughs> I hear it all the time. The religious crowd can be a sinful bunch of people to hang around. Because they can easily start seeing themselves as as no longer being in need. Now, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian college. I make my living working in churches, leading worship in churches, playing concerts in churches, writing songs for churches, speaking at churches, and generally living a lot of my life with church people. I married a lady that I met in church. Religious people, though, can be the hardest folks to get Jesus into. Because they think they've already got Him and they're done and that's it. We think He's our personal Savior that we can do with whatever we want. And we forget that He's calling us all together into His kingdom where He reigns with His people on His terms, not ours. Or, there's another way that we often go. And I have fallen into this category too. We become people who constantly feel condemned. I don't know why I can be so easily swayed in my thinking to believe that Jesus is a God who is a ball bat monster ready to hit me with it at any time I do wrong. Sometimes the religious crowd thinks of God that way, and they're scared to move. They may not hate anyone else, but some of us hate ourselves pretty bad. And some of us condemn ourselves pretty well. I don't know why we do that, but we do. So I ask you the question again, who is condemning you and who are you condemning? You may not fall into any category tonight, but in a crowd like this... I get scared in the religious crowd sometimes because so often it's the religious crowd that, let's just face it, they're the ones that killed Jesus. I'll put myself there. I'm one of them. I believe God's answer to who is condemning you and who you are condemning is so often you. It might be me. I condemn myself. I I condemn others. If you're condemning others, then according to the Bible, you are condemning yourself. If you're condemning yourself with guilt and shame, then you're condemning you too. We usually hear this passage of Scripture as, Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, or else I will condemn you. And Jesus says, Go. Start a new journey. Start a new path. I learned this in counseling years ago while being in ministry, and I won't share the whole story with you, but I went through a very painful divorce myself. I was extremely wounded for many years. Being someone who was in the church and going through a very public painful divorce is a hard thing, and I found myself in counseling quite often with a a good Christian man who helped me to heal through that situation. And I learned in this counseling session that I was being condemned and I didn't recognize what that meant. Well, why am I being condemned? I don't understand that. I don't feel like anybody's condemning me and say, well, you're being pushed away. You're being pushed away by someone you love. That is condemning. That's what condemn means. To cut off, to have nothing to do with and leave no way to have anything to do with. That person. That's what it means to condemn. To not even leave a door open. Not even slightly. To just push them away and say, you're out, you're done, finished, condemned, bye. Well, God is not the one that does the condemning. Do you realize this? God is not the one that does the pushing away. God is the God who draws near. Jesus is the God who draws near the holy spirit is the god who draws near you know who does the condemning in this scenario we are we are the ones who push god away we condemn god did you know you condemn god some people are scared of dying because god's going to condemn them they should be scared that they're going to condemn god because that's what they've been doing they've been pushing away pushing him away, when the God who draws near will not leave them alone. He keeps coming back and he won't take no for an answer. So let me ask you this question again. As we think about the religious crowd together, as we think about who is condemning us and who we might be condemning, is it possible for a group of people to be united around something without being against something or someone else? Tempting and accusing. The things the religious leaders were doing in this story are the works of Satan, by the way. Not the works of Jesus. John is hoping we'll make that connection in this story. That the religious folks, ironically, are acting like the devil. And it still happens a lot, unfortunately. Remember, this is the God who spoke creation into order, this Jesus. He can speak the words that will break us out of that sin. He can even speak the words into a crowd that can change the crowd completely. I believe for a lot of us, we're wanting Jesus to fall with fire and do some big thing and change a circumstance. And Jesus is sitting, kneeling in the sand, writing. And he's just waiting. And we're mandating, Jesus, you do it now. And Jesus is waiting. And He's making us wait and He's questioning us. And in those questions, He is making us begin to turn. And at some point, an elder catches on and goes, oh, well, I'm no better than the one I'm throwing this at. And sometimes God can go into a crowd. Well, God can do it any time He desires. But sometimes the crowd listens. And the crowd will drop the stones and become a new creation. If it happens in individuals, it can happen in churches. If individuals can die to self, then so can churches. How will we deal with our conflict when it comes? It's youth night. How are we going to deal with new music when it comes in the church? Youth, how are we going to deal with the old music? There's got to be a way to love each other the very first worship war we dealt with on the second night, Cain killed Abel. It was all about worship. One didn't like the way the other one was doing it. Maybe he stoned him. I don't know. But Jesus would have us drop our stones. Who is accusing you? Who are you condemning? Who is condemning us? how do we respond an interesting thought occurred to me the other day that the followers of jesus don't usually have a problem loving people we usually have a problem with loving all people god seems to have in mind that everybody deserves it for some reason maybe not that everyone deserves it but because he sees them worthy to love them he wants us to as well I think it was Michael Card who observed the plight of the disciple. Our hearts say we should love, but our minds wonder who. You guys, have, you guys probably have never heard of this, but there's this little social network thing online called Facebook. Anybody ever heard of that? It's kind of a small thing. It's, I've, I just barely have heard of it. Twitter, Instagram. But Facebook is especially good at uniting, and especially religious people around things. About something to hate. It's a good metaphor for the way the world works. It makes me glad I follow a leader who says to love unconditionally and to lose all other identities except the one that matters, your status as a child of God. Christ might be the one uniting point that doesn't call you to hate anyone or something. Or call and he doesn't call you to be something you aren't, he calls you to be his child. He calls us instead of uniting in hate against other people to be still and know that He is God. So in closing, I want to ask the question again that Jesus asked this woman, who is condemning you? Are you condemning you? Are others condemning you? It's not God. Jesus shows us God isn't like that. And you can condemn Him all you want. You can push Him away and be out of His grace as long as you possibly want to try. But He will keep coming back at you. He won't accept it. He wants you to be changed. He wants you to be transformed. He desires you. As a minister of the gospel, one of my greatest privileges, there are probably a lot of ministers in here that you feel this too, that your greatest privilege is to announce to people, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Some of you need to take that in and realize this, that Jesus already did that work. We sang it tonight, Jesus paid it all. Your sins already, right now, even the ones you haven't committed yet, are forgiven you are forgiven it is a gift that god gives to you the question is will you be willing to accept the gift will you be willing to take the gift for what it is and say with gratitude lord jesus thank you thank you for welcoming me a sinner who is completely unworthy who deserves nothing more than to be put on a cross like you were, who deserves nothing more than to be stoned to death. We have it in the Bible. It's biblical if you go to the Old Testament. Thank you, Jesus, that you say, come and dine with me. The way Jesus says it is something like this to the religious crowd. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering ahead of you. Don't you want to come eat with us? Will you accept His invitation to dine tonight? Will you drop the stones and be willing to dine with whoever it was you were about to hit? His call is to repentance and to a meal. The wedding supper of the Lamb. He is the groom and the church is His bride. By coming tonight, as I'm about to open these altars, we're going to receive the Lord's table again. And by coming tonight, as you receive this bread, if you choose, and as you dip it in the cup to receive His blood and His body, you are acknowledging as you do this, if you choose to be a part of this, you are acknowledging, Jesus, I am inviting you inside of me the way that you have invited me. I take you into me tonight. I ingest salvation. I bring it in. I acknowledge that you do not condemn me, and so I'm going to stop condemning you. If you do not condemn me, then I do not condemn you, Lord. Some people are so stubborn, they just never want to say that, but that's all God's really saying with His offer of forgiveness. Stop condemning yourself away from me. Let this knowledge change you. Repent of pushing Him away. Do this by accepting the invitation. Let's stand together. These altars are open, and as we receive the bread and wine from the host who is Jesus, you are inviting Jesus into your life. To take this bread, to dip it in the cup of His blood and receive it, is to receive salvation this evening to come prayerfully repenting and say lord i'm sorry and i stop condemning you away from me i repent of my sin i give you myself i give you my all i am sorry for the sins that i see in my life i'm sorry for the stones that i have been holding on to that i've been aiming at other people now that doesn't mean other people aren't guilty Other people may be guilty and they may deserve it, but guess what? You do too. We all deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But God didn't come to bring you sin. He came to bring you the gift of life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think a lot of Christians are under the assumption God came to bring us sin. You know that? But it says very clearly that's the wages of sin is death. The gift of God. Do you get the difference between wages of sin and the gift of God? They are two different things. Come to the table tonight. Come to these altars. Join the feast and accept the salvation of God. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he thanked God for it. And he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this as a memorial of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, This is is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this as a memorial of me. Take this, all of you. This is my body given for you. Take and eat. Take this, all of you. Drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, shed for you and for all men for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. And we have our communion liturgy we've been using every night. It's going to be up on the screen. And this is your invitation. This is the table of the Lord, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been for a very long time, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, not because it is I who invite you. It is our Lord. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Won't you come as we sing together tonight?
0: every dawn, every sun, this is where.
1: sisters come together in unity and praise the Lord. I just had this thought tonight, and you certainly none of you have to come and partake in this. God's not going to make you stop condemning him away. But I just have to ask a question, why? Why not? I'll never understand why people don't want salvation, but it's just a simple why. You're loved whether you want it or not. And I hope for those of you that, that didn't choose and aren't choosing to participate, you to hear this tonight. You are deeply loved. And we have a very patient God. And it is the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance, so it says in the scriptures. And I just pray you'll stop condemning yourself away. You are welcomed by a Savior who wants to eat with you you don't eat with people that you don't kind of like a little and jesus just doesn't kind of like you he really loves you in jesus we see what god has to say to mankind our lord we pray tonight and we thank you for being here We thank you for this meal, this invitation that you have invited us to. In my mind's eye, I think of Judas sitting at the table at the Last Supper. With Jesus knowing what he was about to do, with you, Lord, knowing what was in the heart of Judas, to betray you, to leave that place tonight, and yet you sat with him, and you offered the same bread and cup to him, Lord, you know how it was Judas' choice not to accept the gift. Oh, he took the bread and he, he drank from your cup, but Lord, we know he didn't really get it. I pray that, Lord, those of us here in the religious crowd would get it tonight. We would not leave the Lord's table and become Judas's, or even Peter's for that matter. But we know that there will be days, Lord, when we will fail. Remind us that you are waiting with open arms for our return, that you are a father who loves the prodigal, and you don't wait on the prodigal to run back to you, you run to the prodigal. Praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Most holy God, save and sanctify your people through and through. Let us be the kingdom of God here on earth. Let us live this biblical life that when the world looks at us, they will know we are Christians by our love and not by what we decided to rage against. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us. Help me. Change me. Change my heart and my life and my mind. I am yours. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray all these things.